Hello and welcome to WNHH Radio's Dateline New Haven. I'm Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make New Haven, Hamden, and Connecticut tick. Michael D'Agostino helps make our area tick as a state representative from Hamden. Now he's looking to step it up. He has formed an exploratory committee. One of those great terms that don't mean exactly what they tell you it means for legalistic reasons. He's formed an exploratory committee for the 2018 campaign for the Democratic nomination for the open attorney general's office. He's here in the WNHA studio to update us on his plans. Welcome, Mike. Thank you, Paul. It's, it's very nice to have you here. Good to be back. And a, we always love having you in the studio. And a special thanks to Yale New Haven Hospital for providing support for today's program. So, Michael D'Agostino, you had an event this weekend. It was uh, to um, kick off. But it, these days we don't kick off campaigns, right? You kick off exploratory committees, <laughs> which sometimes mean what they say and sometimes don't. Yeah, well, let's talk about that for a second because it is an important distinction. It, it's, it's, I think it's one of the great things about the Citizens Election Program, that you have the ability to, if you've never run statewide before and, and might not have ever contemplated it, to form a committee to, to really gauge your viability. And, and that's what this is about for me. I, I'm, I'm not one of these guys who's been running for statewide office for the last six months or, mm-hmm. or have run for statewide office before. I'm a state rep from Hamden. Um, I've got some issues I want to talk about that I think have statewide appeal. And if they do, then you convert to a candidate committee and, and run for a particular office. I just saw listeners know what you're talking about. Citizens Elections Program is public financing. Correct. That's what enables all sorts of people to run, even if they're not rich, like some of the people who run for governor and spend millions on their own campaign. So if you just raise a certain amount of money from enough people who live in the state, register to vote, and then you promise you're not going to take special interest money um, from PACs, political action committees, then you get enough money to run a solid campaign. Dan Malloy did it. He ran for office of public money and beat someone who has a fortune running against them. Twice. So when you form an exploratory committee, you're saying officially you're not a candidate yet. So, and this is where I'm not sure of the fine details. So you don't have to follow the rules yet of the Citizens Elections Program until you're officially announced as a candidate, not, right? Not quite correct. Um, you are a candidate. You're just a candidate for an undefined office. And if you want to qualify for Citizens Election Program funding, CEP funding, then you do have to follow the rules. Rules. So right now, I'm not taking PAC money. I'm not taking lobbyist money. And you also have this limit. Is it how much? $100. So you can't take a contribution bigger than 100 Correct. So even when you're in the exploratory phase, you can't take a bigger contribution you, or else you eventually can't, or you, you can give the money could. back. You, you can take up to 375 I am not, because oh. it's just, the only contribution that counts is up to 100 for statewide office. It's gone up to 250 for state legislative races. By count, year. meaning how much you get reimbursed for? Count toward the grant. In other words, those qualifying criteria you mentioned, you have to hit a certain amount of money, in my case, $75,000. So ideally, a hundred dollar contributions from seven hundred and fifty people, and that's all that counts. So if I take three seventy five from somebody, the two seventy five on top of the hundred, I could spend it, but it doesn't count toward the grant. And then, but what about if now if you don't go in the program, you can take a thousand, right? I think it depends on who the contributor is and and what race you're running for. I honestly haven't looked closely at the non CEP programs. But so when people are exploratory candidates. They still have to follow, they can't take contributions that will 
disqualify them from the public financing later if they do want to eventually be in public financing. Correct. You don't want to do that. Or you can give it back, right? Yeah, you could give it back. But uh, to me, it's just it's easier and it makes more sense. So what's the, the advantage of running as an exploratory candidate? And I feel dumb that I have people explain this to me because I keep forgetting. <laughs> Why would one want to first well, say exploratory rather than actual candidate? It, what's look, the in advantage? My, in, in my case, it's like I said, it's, it's that I've never run for statewide office before. I'd like to think that the issues I want to talk about, collective bargaining, legalization, equitable education aid, et cetera, have a statewide appeal. But if they don't, I'll, I'll find that out over the next few months. Which is one of the great ideas of our citizen election exactly. program is that you show that enough people give you small amounts of money. That's how we want money to talk, not big money to elect candidates. But exactly that right. someone's showing that's not a painful way to say I'm, I'm putting some money I'm, up. I'm proud to participate in it. I think it's a great program. I voted for it. I, I helped, tried to save it this year. But I year. thought there also was a legal clock that starts ticking once you're an official candidate, which is the reason people are careful about when they yeah, so, formally declare. So if, so if on this program today I say flat out, hypothetically, um, I'm running for attorney general. Absolutely no holes barred. That's what I'm running for. No, no exploratory, no nothing. Then legally my campaign has to convert from exploratory to a candidate committee. And what changes when you do that? Then any money I raise can't be used for anything else. Whereas on an exploratory, let's say um, I just don't get the traction that I want to get for state. But they office. say, hey, the com- the treasurer's office open might run for that. You well, can move I'm, the movie I'm, more in my case than I'm very, I, I like being a state rep from Hampton. I oh, would, so you can I, use it for state rep? Yeah, I can use it for state rep or gotcha. state senator, whatever. You know, you, you, as the hypothetical you just gave, you could use it for another office. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't, I, I'm not running for treasurer or anything like that, but, but you, you get my point is that's, I got that's the, the other now advantage. I understand. And it was a little yeah. bit in the weeds there. Mike, can you turn the mic a little bit to face your head on? I can do that. Thanks. Um, so Mike, but you are interested in the job of attorney general with the attorney general. A lot of people don't know because the title means different things in different States. It has nothing to do with criminal cases. You're basically the people's lawyer. You're the civil attorney for the government. You both advise <laughs> government agencies and you also file civil lawsuits and cooperate with other attorneys generals from other state on like going after big tobacco or financial fraud. You run a law firm, really, the public law, the people's law firm of 200 lawyers. That's a great a, way of big, describing it. It's a big management. Yeah, I love that. I'm going to steal that. I'm going to steal that from you. That, that's it, it, that, that's absolutely right. It's got nothing. People, I don't think, understand that. It has absolutely nothing to do with criminal law. Because I remember when Dick Blumenthal first ran, he went after his opponent, Jay Levin, in 1990 for not that's being right. tough enough on drug dealers. And he had some Hispanic drug dealer in a flyer. <laughs> and Jay's like, what you want to let Pedro go kill people. It's and got it really, nothing to do with yeah, criminal law at all. Civil law. It, you, as you said, it, you're the people's lawyer. And, uh, you know, for me, somebody who's both in the civil law private practice for 20 years and being a legislator and and representing people in that respect for tw- more than 20 years it's a it's sort of a perfect that office uh if that's what i eventually run for it would, would is sort of a perfect melding of two careers that i currently haven't been doing for more than two decades combined so let's talk about that so you want to become the attorney general mike d'agostino why do you want the job in addition to feeling like it's a melding of your your private professional life as a lawyer and public professional life as like official. And it's not 20 years state rep, it's 20 years board education and then state rep, right? It's a combination of police commission, 13 years on the board of ed, and then state rep representing people right. in Hamden. And again, exploratory committee, but that is that is that is the office that makes the most sense. What interests sense. you about the attorney general? So, you know, a, a, several things. Um, again, aside from just this perfect melding of, of professionally and politically what I do, um, I, I've really seen in the last year in particular the remarkable influence that that position has on public policy in the state of Connecticut. Uh, let me give you a perfect example. Uh, 
the legislators uh, in the House and Senate will look to the Attorney General to gauge uh, whether or not to advance certain legislation. And the opinion that the AG provides on particular issues can really shape uh, both the debate and the ultimate policy and the ultimate legislation. So, for example, uh-huh. uh, this past year, when we were, when I was defending um, the, uh, the the state employee collective bargaining agreement, um, the Republicans in the House and Senate proposed to make certain changes uh, to the contract. And this is an agreement the governor struck with CBAC, this is the coalition of yeah. government unions, for some givebacks to help start addressing long-term significant, problems. Significant And, you know, some people, and the Republicans felt, and some Democrats as well, right, that it should have not lasted so long into the future, uh, tied us into provisions they didn't Originally, like. but all ended up uh, voting for it. I mean, really what, what you saw from a number of Republicans in the, in the state legislature was an effort to turn this state into Wisconsin, to, to, to vitiate the right of employees to collectively bargain. And to impose instead conditions of employment, wage, hour, retirement via state statute rather than collectively uh. bargaining them. And I felt like that was um, not legal, uh, that, that you would subject the state to suit under the contracts clause of the Constitution. And uh, the AG's office can give an opinion, and in fact in this case wrote a letter, with respect to um, the ability to do that. And while well, I, I love George and his staff, I think they're really smart people and they're terrific um i would have written a different letter i i would have been a bit more um uh overt in the risks to the state that such a suit such a such an effort would have posed was this more neutral like the pros and cons yeah a, a bit a bit more a bit more neutral i mean he did lay it out but <clears throat> there were pieces of his letter that went the other way that that uh Len Fasano in particular who's a you know very smart guy He's top republican very, very stop, smart lawyer that he sort he he grabbed onto and and argued uh, using pieces of that letter, and that's well, an example. Well, it's the attorney general's job to be intellectually honest, so that people you don't agree with actually can find stuff in your opinion that would advance a cause you don't like. Or is it? I mean, that's a question that goes back to the foundations of our law. A lot of people feel that. The Constitution is worded vaguely enough that we should find a legal yep. basis for conclusions. But at the want, end of the day, you, you said say, it. You said it in your intro. At the end of the day, to me, the AG's office is an advocate, an advocate for positions, an advocate for people, and I just strongly believe that you should be. You you can be more of an advocate in that role for positions, in particular positions. I think that that subject the state to legal jeopardy. Uh, actually, no, no, I'm, I'm not, not taking a stand on yeah. this, Mike. I'm talking about a larger philosophical point about law that this raises. Yeah. So John Roberts, who came to U.S. Supreme Court, says, I just call balls and strikes. I go into what it, this plain language says, the original meaning of the Constitution when I interpret a law. Yeah, and the other side, it says he's lying. He's using that as cover because what everybody does with law is you have inclusion you want to reach, but you want to make sure it's founded yeah. in law. And law is fungible enough that it can be interpreted to, to have a an honest legal basis for the inclusion you want, like Brown versus Board of Education, desegregate schools versus mm-hmm. Plessy versus Ferguson in the mm-hmm. late 1800s, and they didn't want to desegregate. Other people say it's it's a fake exercise, and then you have the other people say, so that when you're an attorney general, in this case, Jepson clearly thought he might have wanted to come out stronger for unions because he's a labor guy, but he had a intellectually honest give both interpretations, whereas it sounds like you're saying you can have an honest legal opinion that advances a cause. Absolutely. I mean that that is that's that's what 
that's what I do as a lawyer in my day job. I mean, we run. It's interesting. We run into this all the time with junior associates. I I, I ran into it when I first started in, as a, as a lawyer because coming out of law school, you're given an assignment and you say, okay, we want to make this particular argument for your client and. A lot of times junior, junior associates come out and they say, okay, well, here's this and here's the pros and cons and this. And you go back and you say, no, wait a minute. You, you are an advocate. What's the strongest argument you can make with respect to this particular point you want to you get across for your client? In this case, as you said before, you know, your client are the, is the people of Connecticut. And are we in danger going to Wisconsin? So in that, even in that agreement that a Democratic governor passed, I mean, struck, we are going to have less generous retirement benefits yeah. from people. And, and we're going down a road where most Democrats seem to agree. I've had people run for governor, Democrats in this studio, saying that rather than having the pu- private sector aim to do what public sector unions historically won, which is that you can have enough money to retire safely and securely on, and you can have health care and not be scared about getting sick or having to choose between food and going to the hospital that we would want to raise those standards. Rather than that, we need to have the public sector match what's happened in the private sector where anti-union efforts over a period of decades have decimated unions and retirement benefits and pension benefits have been decimated. And other people say that that had to happen because those were unsustainable agreements. Where, where do you stand on all that? Well, I, I mean, I think, I think it was pretty clear this past year in terms of the right of people to collectively bargain for a decent wage, health care, basic retirement. Uh, and you're absolutely right that there is a push, and it's not over. I mean, I don't think people realize how close we came to becoming a Wisconsin, to really vitiating collective bargaining rights in this state this past legislative session. And, and, Connecticut's, it will be- and Connecticut's purple. It's not at the card of Hartford. It's no longer blue. Well, right, state right now, it, that's right. I mean, I'm are hoping that changes in eighteen. Is that going to I, I think people who are concerned about those issues, who believe that whether you're a teacher, a cop, a fireman, a state employee, a bus that you have the right to negotiate for those basic things, need to get out and vote in eighteen and and be part of a primary process too. Because as you mentioned, there's there's <clears throat> you know people on my side of the aisle who need to be stronger on these, on these points. And those, that, it's a great primary year. So many people running, even on the Democrat side, especially on the Republican side, everybody's running for governor. Yeah. I think there are more names, people run for governor, there are names in the local phone book. And attorney general, you're one of a bunch of people considering, seriously considering a run. <laughs> I think everybody with a law degree is probably considering a run. <laughs> right. And we're talking about that on Dateline New Haven on WNHH, 103.5 FM, live streamed at newhavenindependent.org, where we're talking to Mike D'Agostino, who's one of our favorite people to have in the studio. He's a state rep in Hamden, where WNHH's signal is the strongest. And uh, he's now formed a committee, an exploratory committee, to seek the Democratic nomination for attorney general. George Jepson was had the job, what, two terms? Yeah, I believe so. And he, um, and he could have had it again. Oh, absolutely. Any doubt. No he surprised everybody, which I don't think we ever got the real story about waiting on the job, because I've never seen someone who likes a job as much <coughs> as he likes that job, and Dee Merrill likes the Secretary of State's job. It seemed to be the culmination of their careers, and they get a lot done nationally and locally. For some reason, he's not running any insight. Why he's not running? I, I don't. I, okay. I don't. Aaron Good writes in on Facebook, please ask Mike about whether or not early voting and or no-excuse absentee ballots definitely requires a constitutional amendment <laughs> as the current AG has argued. What a great... Or if he believes it could be done by simple statute. What that means, thank you for the question. Aaron great asks question. great questions. He puts uh, re- supposed reporters like me to shame when he thinks about what to ask people. Uh, but the question I think is, is um, if we want to go to early voting, meaning that you could vote election day isn't just on election day, 
And no excuse absentee ballots, meaning everyone has to vote absentee. Anyone can vote absentee. doesn't mean you have to say you're sick or you're out of town. Do we need to have a constitutional amendment? And that's what George Jepson has argued. Or can it be just the legislature voting? What do you think? Yeah, so there's, there's as you were mentioning before, there's a little bit of play in uh, what our statutes and constitution say about voting. And I think there's a very good argument to be made. And we've never made it. Whereas if we statutorily, forget a constitutional amendment, statutorily uh, passed a law that said, yes, you can have this type of early voting. People can come in several days before. Um, would that be subject to a court case that, that the statute is unconstitutional, that that statute has to yield in, to our constitutional language with respect to voting? Um, yes, but it's never been tested. And I think it <clears throat> absolutely can make an argument that the language is uh, fungible enough, if you will, uh, in the Constitution to allow for early voting by statute. Now, again, you know, there would be a court case. We'd have to go, you know. And is that how people see law as a tool for social justice? Getting back to our early mm-hmm. um, point, is that the law is fungible, you said, meaning that you can interpret it different ways. And it's again and again, I think we're coming back to the role of attorneys young, you think, is to honestly use the law to advance principles. So there's a perfect example with respect to early voting where an opinion that says, well, maybe, maybe not, can kill legislation, or at least influences the legislators to say, ah, we better do this this way. And what I would say is, look, there's a good argument to be made that you can try this. It may may not work, but why not try it? And I would defend that in court, our right to Now, why do we want early voting and no excuse absentee ballots? Well, just, I think, as a matter of policy, uh, you want to make it easier for people to vote. Uh, I don't, I'm not even sure how that is a debatable point. Well, that, I just, I mean, just to be on the record, I completely yeah. disagree with you. I yeah. disagree with Aaron. I disagree with people who see the world the way Why? I do and like oh. these things. I've been a reporter long enough. They know that there's absentee ballot is completely fraudulent. I go, everyone, any time I've ever. Uh, not absentee ballots. Not absentee ballots. Being able to come in and vote on a Saturday because you can't get there on Tuesday because right, well, you we'll got work. We'll get to that one. Yeah. Get to that one. But uh, so I've always seen, anytime I've looked at it, any old person who's done absentee, more often than not, someone's come in there and filled it out for him and broken all the rules. Now, the argument Denise Merrill had when I posed this to her was, so let's just make it that anyone could just do it. I think that opens the door to such fraud that, yes, we want to make it easy to vote. We shouldn't have barriers like these terrible <laughs> racist laws that Republicans are it's tuning all over the country so that people, if you're black, you have to drive three mo- three hours just to be able to vote or register. Mm-hmm. We don't want to have disenfranchisement efforts. But that, but that, I think that rather than the argument that make it all easy by having everyone go online, everyone be able to submit an ballot and vote whenever you want, A, I think it opens up to even more fraud where people get pressured into how to vote. And B, I don't, it, the election campaigns change. So what happens two weeks before an election? People are voting based on the on what the situation is then. In those last two weeks, things can change where there's a war or a new budget deficit where someone would have a different reason for voting for that candidate. And on the day of the election, they might have had a different view. Whereas we, if we all vote on the same day, then we're voting on a similar set of facts, circumstances, and desires. And why not just make it easier by having the election on Sunday? You can't have it on Saturday because Jews can't vote. What if you had it on, on Sunday instead of Tuesday or declare a national holiday in that Tuesday? Make it really easy for people to come to the polls, but not 
open this up to this kind of widespread fraud. Well, well, I mean, first of all, I mean, I don't, I'm not talking about online voting. I think we've got a long way to go before we can do but something Denise like that. But Denise also argues but, that Oregon's been successful with but, that. But wait, she wait. says I'm wrong, and I trust her. She says in Oregon there's been almost no statistical but, but, fraud. Yeah, but with I, I was just going to make that point. I mean, yeah. we're not we're not talking about I'm being the only I'm state right in the union this. that does this. Yeah, I'm not there's, saying I'm right about so, this. So yeah, so there's yeah. plenty of states that do early voting, and there's just simply no evidence of the kind of fraud that you're talking about. So statistically, I don't I. I can't get behind that I argument. I just as we're putting up in a reporter for over thirty years, Mike. I've never not yeah, seen. Yeah, but you've fraud. been a reporter, frankly, in you know New Haven, and you see the stuff that happens in Bridgeport, and there's there's always kind of issues here, and I I, I get that, but it's not fraud. It uh, is outright fraud. Whether it's uh, who mails it and seals it, who stands in the room and tells a wo- an elderly woman who can't figure out what he's saying what to sign and where and sign it for him, it's fraud. But but we're talking about whether or not somebody can just go in and vote early. I don't see how that. Um, exponentially or even well, my, se- my it, second it point changes, early changes is a separate the, yeah, set and I yeah. agree and again I'm not saying I'm right about this yeah. I mean everyone whose views I agree with on the world disagrees with me about this <laughs> okay so I don't realize that there are reasonable people could disagree but look, look the concern the, you're raising is a valid but what one. about the concern about changing circumstances like if you're if yeah, you're abroad you I've heard that argument yeah, I've that. heard that argument before if you can be out of town but the, I think I think that what the what the literature will tell you is people make up their minds in their vote and those changes in circumstances perfect example Donald Trump the 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 tape right mm-hmm. that didn't change the mind of any Trump voters whether they voted early or later, they were voting for the guy. So I don't, I don't know if there's really that kind of sea change. So you think of, I'm, I'm overstating that I do. about the I, conversation. And, and, and I just, I base that on experience in early voting states. If, if we were, if we didn't have that experience, I, I'd say, well, wait a minute, these are. Valid and you're concerns. right. The yeah. data supports your position and Aaron's, not mine, about online voting. And you see, you see, I share this concern that it is civil rights to undo this damage that's been, this assault that's taken place nationally on voting rights for African Americans. But I guess I feel there are better ways to do it and still preserve the integrity of elections. I mean, isn't the, isn't the solution to the, to the, the the core issue you're identifying though, with respect to absentee ballot fraud at a local level, it's not, it's not an early voting issue. It's making sure that you've got professional registrars in place that you've got more oversight over the ballot pro- that ballot process, empowering the state elections enforcement. Yes, because we're talking about two separate and, issues. Yeah. For early voting, yeah. the issue for me is same set of circumstances. Your response is the data shows that that doesn't change people's votes it for really two doesn't. weeks. Yeah. Um, Dominic Devino writes in, and again, I'm not saying I'm right about this. No, you're it's, saying a great, why, no it's a great debate. You're saying it's why a great would debate. anyone think yeah. that? I was telling you why I think yeah. that. Um, Dominic Devino says FT, I'm not sure what that is, mm-hmm. is not good. Fraud is all around. Anything can happen right to the day of the election. So how early is too early? That's a question there. How early is too early? So if it's like I love the oh, fact I see what that you're saying. So, you do so it a the, month, you do it two months, you do it two weeks. Does a great job of extra hours that week leading up to the election. If you're not going to be in town, so you can bring in the absentee mm-hmm. vote. I mean, I love that they do this. I love mm-hmm. the I love the impulse behind all these proposals, <laughs> which is to have everyone voting and more democracy. I just feel like democracy should have some standards and responsibilities. Well, not, we do. We not do. fake ones. We and do. also, we should also mention that with all this talk about fraud nationally, the only fraudulent vote that was revealed by Trump's commission <laughs> was someone who voted twice for Donald Trump, Trump in a yeah, suburb. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Proving the point. Right. <laughs> yeah, 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 right, yeah. Right. Mike D'Agostino is here. He's a lawyer. He's a state rep from Hamden with a long history of public service. He has formed an exploratory committee to look at running for attorney general this coming year, get the Democratic nomination, and we're talking about some great issues here about the law and what he'd like to see. So another value you talked about um, is uh, legalization. You mean marijuana? Sure. Now, what is the Attorney General? Is this, again, in the advising roles? No, and so this, the role, well, again, the, the, depending on what office I end up going for, but if, if the Attorney General's role with respect to legalization really would be to uh, 
protect the state and advocate for the state's ability to do it. I'm sure you saw the recent headline about Sessions rolling back the Obama level uh, uh, era um, uh, hands-off approach to to states' rights with respect to this. And I said on Saturday, I think it's, uh, and I want to repeat it here, you know, it's amazing to me you've got, you know, the conservatives sort of grabbed that mantle of states' rights for a hundred years, right? To protect everything from slavery. As long as it gets the result they want. They want state rights to be able to keep black people as virtual slaves, but now that they're in charge, they don't want state rights to have some states so so, so why not within our borders although liberals are just as hypocritical because the liberals <laughs> wanted to have federal action i'd say we're more principled but okay <laughs> well but it's, it's, it's that same argument we had about attorney general which is an about law you're viewing I, I, I hear law you. as a tool to have social and yeah. so are they yeah. so jeff sessions believe in using the law to get rid of civil rights to oppress black people to keep marijuana illegal so he's going to use the state rights arguments convenient he's going to use a federal intervention right when that's convenient when he says standing up for federal law similarly once you argue that liberals really the values they're standing up for are civil rights and that if that means sometimes the state's rights argument works better that's the one we use and if it's a federal one that's the one we again use. you're an you're an advocate particularly in that role you're an, you're the lawyer for the people of connecticut you're going to use every tool in your so toolbox every arrow doing in your what you do only for the wrong side <laughs> That's fair to say, right? <laughs> it's fair. He's doing it for nefarious <laughs> ends. So, so Jeff Sessions has decided. Well, that he, well, he's he's left it to. I mean, it's not. It's he's not undone a, an Obama, uh, an Obama directive of hands off to the federal prosecutors that let states in there, right? that ro- yeah. that legalize marijuana leave them alone in terms of arresting people for growing and selling because it's legal in their states. Don't use federal law to override it. Sessions, no, it's, so it's still it's still up to the individual U.S. attorneys in each state. Right. And, um, Who are appointed by the... the I'm blanking on our gentleman's name. He replaced Deidre Daly, and he's a terrific... I, I, I'm blanking on his name, but he's a, he's a career guy. He's not a mm-hmm. Trump guy. He's a, right. just a no-nonsense, good federal prosecutor. I think... My, my sense is the U.S. attorney's office in Connecticut... Um, recognizes that they've got significant priorities elsewhere, uh, but he, but um, they still have to answer to Washington. They do. Washington can't. And I agree with you. No one, you know, everybody would agree with you about Connecticut. But what what do you think is going to happen with that, Mike? I mean, what's going to happen in Colorado? You have a billion dollar business, the Republican senator there, who did not favor legalization of marijuana, but once it became a big industry, he he wants to let states have the right to. To, um, See, I think that you just put your finger on it where, where there's the resistance now is that this has become as much of an economic issue as a social justice issue. And, and for me, it's the latter that really sort of changed my thinking on it. But mm-hmm. because there's now such an industry developed, we're talking about thousands of jobs in particular states, hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, um, really just sort of ingrained in the economy and also cutting the legs out from under organized crime and that and the black market economy that I, I just don't and you're also s- talking about um criminal justice that you know there's again a racial element to this social justice yeah you're it, four times you're more likely to be convicted if you're black, if you're black. Yeah. absolutely it's it's it was, so you'd like to see recreational use of marijuana legalized in connecticut there's a move to do that yeah. our neighboring states have done it like massachusetts so even Dan soon to come in it. maine and rhode island so, Vermont. so feeling we're going to do it but yet sessions is now throwing a monkey wrench saying the federal government's going to try to mess with states that do that so how's that going to affect the upcoming session, do you think? Are we going to pass it? I mean, again, he hasn't said that the federal government's going to go out and do it. He's left it to the individual U.S. attorneys. And, I, I, I again, I'd like to think that we're not going to have this, well, like, John a rating Durham, of medical. Well, John Durham in, in Connecticut. John, the US thank Attorney you, General, Yes, he's, He yeah. is a very respected career. He's a Republican. Incredibly very respected. respected. They, he's gone after 
corrupt politicians from both the Democratic and Republican side. He's a professional side. prosecutor. But he's it, not a political. But it is if if the federal government says we're going to if his boss says we're going to enforce the law, you're confident he won't enforce it. No, I'm not saying he won't enforce the law, but they've got limited resources to go to to enforce a, a range of laws in this state. And again, I'd like to think that they're going to continue their work with anti-corruption, anti-gang violence, et cetera, et cetera, that, that, and, and prosecuting individuals for small amounts of possession of marijuana just simply, it, it doesn't, forget economically, forget socially, it just doesn't make sense if you're a prosecutor in your office trying to marshal your resources to do yeah. that. Dominic DeVino weighs in on a Facebook page. You can follow us on the um, New Haven Independent Facebook Live page. Um, Sessions is going to be fired soon. We will make so much money. Why? We have not done this yet because it makes people nervous. What would happen to all the people that are in jail for the law change? Enforce the federal and local laws is where the Attorney General job is. Kate Rosen writes in State Representative Josh Elliott has come out very publicly in support of your exploratory campaign. Do you subscribe to the same slash and burn? Oh, this is an interesting question. I'm going to hold that one, Kate, for another question. And Jennifer Pope, there was much more, so much more voter suppression than voter fraud. I'm much more worried about making sure eligible voters who can vote do vote. Thank you, Jennifer. Agree, Thank Jennifer. you, Dominic. Yeah. Thank you, Kate, for writing in. I love the questions that come from our listeners much better than the ones I'm throwing at you. But before we get to Kate's question, Mike, let's move. Let's continue with the marijuana question. Mm-hmm. So you're in favor of recreational use of marijuana being legal. Mm-hmm. As Attorney General, what will be your role with that? So, all right. So again, you, my my assumption is that. Um, you know, eventually you'll you'll come to some sort of loggerhead with the federal government. So what it makes sense is to bring a case, probably under the Tenth Amendment, uh, to defend the state's right to do that, to to regulate within its borders. You could make a a commerce clause argument as, as well. I mean, the, the 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 understand. I mean, I had to get too legal geeky here, but. Um, Some the, of the arguments people are using against Obamacare, right? Well, but, the, Obama but the, the power clause. of the federal th- there's no such thing as federal criminal law under the Constitution. Federal criminal law exists by virtue of the Commerce Clause. The states Which the, says the, that any time that's a Fed's always trying to if do that. With a, drugs, if there's an interstate there commerce effect, we can we, we can do something law. about it. Exactly. And we like to do that to try to get drug yeah. dealers. So, so the for U.S. Supreme time. Court um, has has said actually in a case called U.S. v. Lopez, and it was a, the conservative court. It was very surprising at the time. I think it was the Rehnquist Court. But these issues set, transcend liberal conservatives. Right, 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 there's yeah. limits to even the federal government's power. With respect to criminal criminalizing law under the Commerce Clause, in that case, it was it was uh, I think gun free or drug free zones around schools. You can make the same type of argument with respect to legalization. If what we're talking about is within our borders, right? We're just regulating it within our borders, growing within our borders, selling within our borders. How is that an interstate commerce issue? So you can make a, a Commerce Clause argument as well as a Tenth Amendment. But it's so what we talked about earlier, law is fungible. So when they're going for drug dealers, uh, as soon as they, somebody's so going to make the counterargument. You Absolutely. make a phone call to another state that involves yeah. sending a hundred dollars. So, so that's your job as the attorney general, as the chief civil lawyer, is to make the argument. Use every hour in your arrow in your quiver to make the argument to to support the laws uh, and, and the policy. So your job, as attorney general, would be to advise the legislature that they should go ahead and legalize marijuana because here is the basis of the legal argument we'll make. If the Trump administration tries to mess with it's us. certainly an argument I would make. Would you also work with other attorneys general on this issue? Oh sure, yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the great things that Jepson's office has done, uh, um, Attorney General Jepson was, I think, the head of the National Associations of Attorney Generals and and took a leadership role there and sort of coordinating amongst uh, cases. And I think people don't realize also, um, you know, the, the team that they've got there, uh, pretty phenomenal team. Uh, there's there's a 
a guy named Joe Nielsen, who's a who's a who's a pretty amazing litigator who I've actually gone up against in cases. Um, that that team did closing arguments in the uh, I believe it was the Apple price fixing case a few years ago. It was a federal case brought in conjunction with U.S. with uh, attorneys general around the state around the around the country. And our Connecticut team actually did closing arguments in that case that led to a multi-million dollar st- settlements for for, uh, for states across the country. All right. And we're talking about that on Dateline New Haven on WNHH Community Radio 103.5 FM. We're talking to Mike D'Agostino, one of the liveliest guests we have on the program from time to time. He's a state <laughs> rep from Hamden, and he's got his eye on the Democratic nomination for, for attorney general, a job that's opening up and has a lot of people going after it. Exploratory committee. And he's only exploring, folks, so uh, <laughs> that's a legal term. Kate Rosen writes in, State Representative Josh Elliott of Hamden, you guys are kind of a tag team sometimes, yeah. has come out very publicly in support <laughs> of your exploratory campaign, Mike, for attorney general. Mm-hmm. Do you have subscribed to the same slash and burn tactics he is currently advocating for? Let me explain that to our audience. So obviously, we, I think I can guess where Kate Rosen stands on this. This is another one of those great issues that very reasonable people can have two views on. Josh Elliott's a freshman. He's 33 years old, and he's, he's already upset the apple cart, which is said he, why he went to Hartford. He polled all his fellow Democrats in the legislature and said, I'm trying to see where you stand on some key progressive issues, raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, increasing taxes on the rich, to see if I think you should be offed, whether we should find other Democrats to boot you out. And some people, and let me just lay out for our listeners the two views on this. And that's a national debate in both parties, which is that are, is the party straining too much from core principles just to win elections so that it no longer becomes worth it to win the elections? And, and, or do parties need to be bigger tents where you can disagree about even some litmus test issues in order to get a larger agenda through? This past session brought that debate into relief because the Democrats no longer have the supermajorities in the legislature. The state Senate is tied 18 to 18. The lieutenant governor breaks the vote and it's now 79 to 72 in the House, which is not an airtight majority. And we saw that when it came time to try to pass a budget. Enough suburban conservative Democrats defected and on this key issue of the budget voted against the Democratic budget and with the Republican budget so that the Republican version passed with many core positions that are anathema to Democrats. Similarly, they united with the Republicans to overturn a hard-fought victory Democrats had in the past, which was to have a state affordable housing law to make it hard for suburban towns to keep out affordable housing. As soon as they took that vote, Milford was already stopping affordable housing from being built. It only took weeks. So those people say Josh Elliott, Mayor Harpers, who's usually a Big Ten person, was on the air saying Josh Elliott's right. At some point, it's not worth saying you're a Democrat if you can't, if you stand in the way for the Democratic for placing the big issues, other people say this is death, this is suicide, this is what the Tea Party did to Republicans, and you're just going to find moderate and conservative districts turning red for good because you're pushing out Democrats who respond to them. So where do you stand on that, Mike? So there's a lot in there, right? I, I think I, in the first instance, I, I would disagree with uh, the characterization of this as, as slash and burn, and, and that Josh went around um, sort of you know, some sort of McCarthy-esque fashion, finding out where everybody stands. And, oh, it was and, out in the open. Well, no, but and it wasn't about well, whether no, they're but, communists. But I was, or yes yeah. or no? You're I mean, I was there. Sister. I was yeah. in there when he was going. I mean, it was it was. You know, here are some ideas we want to talk. Why about. Why did everybody fill that out? Like, why would um, because it wasn't Bonnie it, it wasn't it. it wasn't a I want to find out where everybody stands so I can go against you. It's a it it's a here's some issues that you know. Do we want to try to advance as a caucus legalization? 
increasing taxes on the wealthy, closing the hedge fund loophole. And actually, if you poll, most of, you know, most of our members support these things. And so where do you stand on these things? And then from a policy standpoint as a caucus, what can we get behind to move forward? Tolls, things like that. So it wasn't this sort of McCarthy-esque, I, I need to know where everybody stands and I'm going to go it's more, after It's you. more a tactical question. It's sort of like the abortion issue. Yeah, Bernie Sanders policy. supported economic you know, what, what, what do we, what, at its core, right, what do we want to stand for going into 2018? We've been so all over the place. What are the core things that we should be standing for, i.e. protecting workers, collective bargaining, um, increasing taxes on the wealthy, legalization, things like that. And and yes, there's different views within our caucus, but I think you really are starting to see a move within the Democratic caucus towards these core issues, because that's what people, I think, want. And and also, and, and this is really where I, I, I really want to give Josh credit on something, where I've seen a change in our caucus. Um, in the In past years, issues didn't even come up for a vote, like legalization like tolls, for example, somebody could go into the leadership's office and say, I'm not going to vote for that. Don't make me vote against it on the floor because I don't want to have to explain myself. Um, and things would just get killed to protect people. And Josh I just talked about it on the radio. Here. I think he, said wrong. He, he says, even if you're going to lose on an issue, that's an important Put value up for and then a year vote, year build the support, use that as a way of building. Support. So we didn't even vote for tolls this session. And, and that was an incredibly frustrating for me and for a lot of other people, particularly Tony Guerrero, who's just a tremendous champion for this in, in the House, who's, who's put basically his life's work in the legislature into this. It's just, to me, I, 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 we can debate that separately. But, you know, I strongly believe we should have that. And to not, and so people come up and say, where do you stand on it? I say, and they don't know because I didn't get even a chance to vote on it. So I think what we're really starting to see is a change with respect to that with our, our caucus and our leadership. And that People came out of the Bernie Sanders campaign that Josh Elliott came out yeah. of, which is that the party has to stand for something beyond just winning elections. Win or lose. Put now, it on the, the other board side of and that vote is that for that the D party ruined the Republican Party, traditional values, whether it was immigration or um, environmental protection, whatever it is, that they steered the party away that a minority wanted. And that in the long term, they believe they won't be able to win elections. Other people say the Tea Party, in fact, had them stand for something that's solid that a lot of Americans believe in. And that, in fact, that's why they're now winning, because they stand for something. They, they've been in power. They can, you, can, you, can, you know what they stand so for. So you're okay with primarying incumbent Democrats on these issues? Look, I think, I think everybody has to say where they stand on these issues. And then it's up to the voters to decide... But Do they, that's, a, that's a little disingenuous because people like well, Hamden Pan with support of you guys yeah. do support primary opponents. They're looking to primary people. Yeah, so, so if you're in a town where that doesn't have – my point is you should, you, should st- you should stand up and say where you are on these issues. If you're running as a Democrat in the state of Connecticut, do do you support increasing taxes on the wealthy? Do and is there support- a litmus test issue for just abortion? So after Bernie, the presidential campaign, Bernie Sanders supported a left-wing candidate for mayor, I forget if it was Tulsa or where, when every issue but abortion was left-wing, like far left, but was pro-life and said, I'm not going to do I- anything to pass that. And some people felt Thomas Perez, yeah. the head of the Democratic Committee, said that's a litmus yeah, test I, issue. I, I, I mean, I, I, personally for me, I think there are certain... Uh, Things we have to campaign on, on as Democrats. We have to stand for pro-choice. We have to stand for increasing So taxes. would you not let someone run for office? Who well, it's not to me to, to say you but can't you run. But, but to, to, to me, it's, look, if you're not going to stand for those issues, uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm not going so mean, to, I can't, uh, so, I can't. And I'm just giving both sides in this yeah. argument, that's all. And again, some people say if you're not going to stand for core issues, you're not going to appeal yeah. to people anyway, so that a whole conventional thinking that you need a Hillary yeah. Clinton candidate doesn't work. 
But other people say that, you know, women are, are such important voters that if you're not even going to stand for pro choice policies, why do you have to I think we have to, as a party, have these core things that we're going to stand for. So was Bernie wrong to try to help someone win an office who was going to bring progressive economic forms, more progressive taxation, and responsibility from big institutions? I think think whether it's the Sanders, quote-unquote, wing, or the the Democratic Party as a a party, Perez, whoever it is, we we all have to sit down and say, okay, here's the core thing. As you just said with the Tea Party, with the Republicans, that's what they've done. So what are those handful of things that we stand for? We absolutely yeah. have to do that. And pro-choice is one of them. It, I mean, it has to be. I, I don't, uh, you know, and I, I'm what sorry if, if that means... pro-life and says, I, I want a position where I'm not going to vote on that issue or deal with that issue? I mean, I guess you can take that position, but I would think that the core of the Democratic Party is not going to support that person. But but maybe, they, I mean, Pennsylvania, I know, is it Casey? Right, I think he's right, got that position. The, yeah. uh, so it, then Democrats say, but boy, if, you know, if we elect Casey, then we'll have a majority and a nine-tenths of our issues... We're going to get it passed. Yeah, and look how that has kind of turned out in Connecticut, for example, which sort of, With that's this been the attitude, so this last which has basically been, was a Republican-controlled session. Yeah. So, I mean, that that argument of, well, if we just cede on this point and see, we've been ceding for so long that we've just lost identity, and and now you've oh, got the Republican. Yeah, so Tony Harp said, she's usually a Big Ten person. She came out for Josh Elliott's position because of what you just said. She said, when the numbers, What's our identity? When the numbers are tight yeah. in a legislature and you have core positions you can't count on the people then look that that may mean that may mean that we lose a couple of seats that that, i don't i don't control the legislature i don't believe that by the way i think i think you will see i think we will see democratic majorities in the senate uh, a democratic majority in the senate a stronger majority in the house and and a sweep of the constitutional offices i I truly i think i think the municipal elections foretold pollsters are not agreeing with you though well, okay, for, but, for but the what, are the, what, are the po- what are the pollsters anyone, say about the municipal races? Democrat. Yeah, yeah. The po- on all the insiders, right? They all said, "Oh, this all this new activism, uh, the women's march, the Action Connecticut crowd. Uh, oh, that'll just peter out after a few months, right?" It's not only has it not petered out, it has mushroomed. These people are a tidal wave. We had we had people in Hamden. This is remarkable to me. Uh, the Ham- Hamden Progressive Action Network. You've had some of them on. Uh, Jennifer Pub, George Fernandez, and some other folks. They've been the most Gray. impressive outgroup that I've seen on the ground locally and, and, coming and, out of and this it's not, But it's not just that they're knocking doors in Hampton. They went out and knocked doors in a municipal election in Woodbridge and Bethany in May. Think about that. So that that energy has not right, subsided. They're very committed to going to purple and it's, and it's and not just towns, Hampton. It's yeah. New Haven. It's, it's, it's core areas, Fairfield County. Uh, uh, there's, there's a fantastic group down there. I, I mean, they have branched out, and you're going to see this I think, as part of the election cycle in 18. Again, so long as we stand for core beliefs, uh-huh. so long as we get behind those core beliefs and say, this is what we stand for, I, I truly believe you'll, you'll be looking at um, strengthening the Democratic Party in the fall rather than weakening it. And Michael D'Agostino is talking about doing that as he explores, quote unquote, term of heart, uh, legal term, a, a candidacy for the Democratic nomination for attorney general in 2018, and we're talking about that on Dateline New Haven, WNHHFM 103.5 FM, live streamed at newhavenindependent.org. Mike, before you go, I wanted to ask you about the third major issue you brought up mm. at the beginning, which is equitable education. Oh, and boy, yeah. has the Attorney General played a key role on we've that. We've talked about this. So we've talked about this on the air a lot, and I, and I think education has been one of your big issues from day one, yep. Board of Education at the legislature. You've had really interesting things to say about magnet schools. Mm-hmm. And um, so last year, there was, mm-hmm. a, there was a judge whose name I could never... Thomas McCausher. Said that the way we fund schools is constitutionally inequitable. 
He did not rule that you have to spend more money on schools. Mm-hmm. He says you got to change it because you're cheating poorer districts to help richer districts because of control of the legislature. You have to fix it. So the state appealed his decision, and the attorney general gave the opinion that the judge overstepped his bounds and the judge can't tell the legislature what to do there. This past session, I would argue the legislature proved the judge right because unless I missed something, you guys didn't deal with the issues he ordered you to deal with to change the way we fund education. Can I get, am I wrong about that? We tweaked the formula. We did tweak it. We moved toward a more equitable, non-arbitrary. Wasn't that Governor Fiat, though? Wouldn't he like yeah, move it, money but, from Richard Towns to poor and you Yeah, at the end back? of the day, we d- certainly didn't do it to the extent that I believe cures the constitutional problem. So was Jepson right to fight this? What's the status of the appeal and what would you do if you do pursue a run for attorney general and you win the office? So uh, in terms of the status, it's been submitted and argued, and I think we can expect a decision actually within the next month or two. Um, you know, uh, Chief Justice Chase Rogers is retiring soon. This was on her docket. I think she's going to want to have this decision uh, issued while she's still on the bench. This goes back to what we were talking about earlier, Paul. Uh, I mean, I... Again, I respect George and his team tremendously. Um, I would have gone to the legislature and say that said the judge is right, that the system we had in place, particularly when he issued his ruling, was arbitrary, uh, did not meet the constitutional requirement of a free and adequate public education, and, and needed to be changed in order to have a more... Uh, robust defense in court. I think, the, uh, in fairness, I think the judge did overstep his bounds on a number of other pieces of his ruling with respect to, for example, um, teacher reviews and evaluations and special education funding. But the core of his holding, that the formula, or frankly, the lack of following any kind of formula and instead throwing it into the sort of the political machine and mix of figuring out what town gets what money uh, without any kind of, without any re- really following any um, strictures was unconstitutional and i mean i appreciate the defense that that they've mounted but i i do disagree with it i i feel strongly that this has come back again to what we've been talking about much in this hour that george jepson wanted to agree with the judge but felt that an intellectually honest reading of the law said that he'd overstepped or is well, again, he did, he, did, he did overstep on a number of things but i, I think there's a role for uh the you know, again, that the the chief civil lawyer when the legislature so which looks part to, was Jepson wrong about? Because he said that he said in some ways he overstepped. You're saying in some ways he overstepped. What did Jepson get wrong? I, I, I'm not I'm not saying it's wrong. I think as a matter of policy, though, you can be you can be more of an advocate as a chief lawyer. That's what so a, what, a lawyer's. What, what so can I, you specifically I, have I, said I would have, that was I different. would have gone in and said, yeah, looking at what you're doing, the fact that you actually have not followed a you the legislature have actually not followed a formula for the last nine years, is unconstitutional. And I will have trouble defending that in court unless you change it. And in fact, not changing it and continuing to have a system that is just simply X amount of money goes here, X amount of money goes there, and may change year to year depending on who's chair of the Appropriations Committee, is unconstitutional. And that's where you can help shape debate at the legislature from a policy standpoint as a lawyer. Did you, was there any specific part of the decision that he considered unconstitutional that you thought was constitutional? Other way around constitutional that he, I, I, I don't, I don't know if, if you ask their, their team whether or not they say constitutional, unconstitutional, they would just say, we're going to defend this. And here's the argument. I mean, I had this debate with the team that 
that I thought that they were going to have a tough time at oral argument when the judges press them on the fact that there actually is no formula. And I, I don't, as I understand, that actually never really came up. I didn't think, frankly, that the plaintiff side did a particularly good job uh, at oral argument because what they should have been arg- up there arguing was there is no formula. It's just arbitrary. It's not followed. What's the response state of Connecticut? And the response would have been, well, yeah, we don't really have a formula, but the money we give mirrors what the formula says it should give. I mean, that's, that's a pretty no, there's weak No, there's no defense that in a way they passed the budget last year, not this year, yeah. was to take money out of Bridgeport and sending it to Westport. I mean, this is under the, if the constitutional system has equal education. Free and adequate public education. Not, but the argument I thought came back is that you fix that through legislatures, through democracy. And I thought the judge's point was democracy failed to do that yeah, we, through legislature. We, we had, we and the constitution is a larger bar. It's, and this yeah. gets, dates back to civil rights debates. Other people say long-term you don't win the debate if you try yeah. to do it by judicial fiat yeah it'll be fascinating to see what the court does i think they will probably what i'd like to see is that they they jettison the most parts of his ruling on teacher evaluations and special ed but they uphold that core part that there is really no formula and that they direct the legislature to come up with a more a non-arbitrary a mechanical here's here's what goes in you take into account you know english language learners uh you know special education costs, et cetera, et cetera, and and it spits out a number for town, and that cannot be altered by the whims of the legislature. And you're disagreeing there with Jeff says that you wouldn't have defended the state's position. I would have have said to the legislature, don't make me go in and defend it. All right. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you came here to defend your position on Dateliner Haven. You're always welcome here. Mike D'Agostino, state representative, running for, uh, exploring a run for the Democratic nomination for attorney general in 2018. Mike, any parting words? Uh, exploratory committee. Yeah. Or what did I call <laughs> yeah, it? No, you did. Thank okay. You. <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming in. I hope you'll be coming back. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate it. Anytime. Too. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to Yellow Haven Hospital for providing support for today's program. Thanks for our guest, Exploring State Attorney General Candidate Mike D'Agostino. We're going to take it out with the Afro Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free from the group CD A Plea for Peace. Now we know what it's like to be free, and we don't need any legal experts telling us the contrary. We just got to remember to book our flight. Book your flight with us all day and all night long here at WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio. Radio.